This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. Uh, my name is Andrew. Andrew, you Give were me just a minute to fuss with my pop screen because <laughs> my baby Henry has started because I have him at my desk while I'm working sometimes. Oh, yes. I've seen he, the footage. And he has enough core strength that he can kind of like stand up if aided. And when he can do that, he can reach the pop screen. And when he can do that, it's good night, Irene. You know, it's, he's just. Yep, Messing that's how it, it goes. So that's... now it's fine. So now we can podcast. Great. Podcast ho. <laughs> I see a podcast over there. Let's go yeah. find it. Um, mm-hmm. This is our weekly book podcast where one of us reads a book and tells the other person about it. It's actually been a while since we did the normal formula, Andrew. I think like we, what was the last one that you read? Shadow of the Wind, maybe? I think it was the did... Shadow of the Wind, right? Yeah, because we did... Hunger Games, and then we did a Choose Your Own, uh, mm. our Encyclopedia Brown bonus episode will be coming out later this week, where we all like read those together. So we're getting back, mm-hmm. getting back to basics on this one. Let's say mm-hmm. if that back in the in the <laughs> what did they call them on um on that reality show? Uh, is Love Is Blind the pods oh let's get back in the pods we're back, we're back in we're the pods back in the pods separately we're just again. trying to get our relationship <laughs> back to where it was in the pods <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh so this week i read a book called a death in the family by james ag thanks to uh andrew's emma saying research for the pronunciation on that one if it's wrong blame emma <laughs> That's what I always say. Uh, it, I think it's the slogan of the channel. <laughs> uh, it was a Patreon recommendation, patreon.com, uh, from Nikki, who said uh, many moons ago, it took us a while to get to this one, uh, I live in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I was hoping you guys could give one book a try that takes place in that city, A Death in the Family by James Agee. It's a southern gothic story. I feel like it's one of the books that I should have read by now, given that it takes place in my hometown, but say la vie. So I'm not even sure at the time of this email that Nikki had read this book. Maybe they have by now, but we're doing it today. We sure are. And who knows if, if Nikki even lives in Nashville anymore, but we're just, we're just Knoxville, but all, you know, <laughs> whatever. Nashville, Knoxville, Chattanooga, Choo Choo, all Tennessee, it's all the great smoky mountains to me. If you know what I'm saying? <sighs> James A.G. was born in 1909 <laughs> and died of 1955. I was Wait, doing... he died of 1955. He died in 1955. <laughs> I, and in the Slack before we were recording, I was kind of giving you a, a uh, I don't, not cynical, but like a sort of an eye rolling sort of synopsis of this guy's arc because get this, Craig, he's a white male author from the 50s mm-hmm. who had a tragedy in his life at a young age, then went to college and then became 
a writer by way of being a reporter, mm-hmm. and then he died young-ish. Mm-hmm. Which author am I referring to? If it's you don't a- know that I'm referring to James Ag, I could be talking about any of them, pretty yes, much. Yes, you could. 50s. And it is it is a shame that that has happened to people. It is also a shame that that is so overrepresented in the canon, which I think That's is where my, you're yeah, coming from, right? This this particular like demographic is repre- is overrepresented in a way that when we have to come up with like 15 minutes of stuff to talk about <laughs> Fair is, enough. is sometimes less interesting than somebody who, I don't know, was like a whaler and... <laughs> And a school teacher and like a like a rock musician and then became an author. You know? Sure, sure. Just to pick another sort of just less different common types part. of yes, my teacher, the rock musician. Okay. Wait, so let's read a book by Jack Black's character from the movie School of Rock. Let's do that. Yeah, okay. That sounds like it's sounds up great. your alley. Um mm-hmm. so digging into like the specifics about AG that I didn't know and that are not like I don't think they contribute directly to the the prototypical stereotypical narrative that we've discussed already is something that's at the heart of this book is that like after his dad passes he goes to a bunch of different like boarding schools um, including one that is run by like a monastic order of episcopal priests Um, a lot of the scholarship on ag um, comes from some of the correspondence with this dude father fly who just has a sick name father fly does pretty fly (laughs) um (laughs) <laughs> it's a very like <laughs> hey kids i'm gonna teach you about jesus and skateboard he likes he rolls in on his skateboard jumps off and lands perfectly on a chair backwards yeah <laughs> it's pretty good father fly jesus died so that i might do the sweet half pipe <laughs> why does father fly only play songs from green day's dookie it's really weird <laughs> um so yeah he went to this the Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire. Uh, he went on to Harvard, where I think one of his classmates was Robert Fitzgerald, who has done some like Odyssey translations. That's how I recognized that guy's name. Um, and he's in the collection of people who have like written fond things about Ag after his passing. Um, yeah, he's a he's a real he's a writer's like, writer. He's a writer's writer, yeah. Because th- there is a one of the other things that he he did is uh, he was a film critic for Time and The Nation, yeah, uh, for a lot of years. And, and a lot of his pieces for Time were connect- collected in a posthumous book called Ag on Film. Um, even though I guess articles in Time magazine at the time temporally <laughs> were not signed with like bylines which is wild to me to like do that for eight years and not have a byline Ooh. i don't that's what i read i don't know if that's 100 percent true but that's what i read i think he i know what i found he was doing some book reviewing for time Mo- most of his film was in the nation apparently for one movie uh that was called you were meant for me his review was that's what you think <laughs> that was the whole review of the film, which is pretty. He seemed like he had a an acerbic streak as well. But yeah, to to like get back to to the writers, writers. Yeah, thing, yeah, like yeah. One of the one of the pieces you sent to me for like here's because the the thing with with I think like white fifties alcoholic male writer is like okay, what what is what is different? What can we pull out and talk about that? 
is unique to him and like informs his work and and you know his work is famous for you know it it because it is that's the canon that it's in and that's that's what has been studied and what has been prioritized but also within that canon it's famous because it's like good or it's it does yeah. the things yeah. that that uh that canon like values so what informs that work and why are we talking about it why is it worth talking about um and this uh the 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 guy in the new yorker piece who was writing about him was was a film critic who just who who waxes poetical for many thousands Mm -hmm, of words about mm -hmm. just like how great and influential like he and his his reviews are and i feel like it's hard so much about has been written about it and about him and so much of it is so like complimentary and and like there's there's this vein of you know sadness that he didn't get to do more work and there's talking about his like working habits and how he was you know because of smoking and drinking like he didn't do as much work as maybe he could have and isn't that kind of sad and it just like people really wanted writers really wanted him to write more writing yeah that's a good that's um I don't know. I was thinking a lot about Amy Winehouse as I was reading some of the biographies of or oh, some sure, of the sure, writing sure. about AG of just like yeah. so many musicians and like the the outpouring of grief, not only for the loss of a person, but the loss of the career that could come from that date onward. Um, and it's a thing, unfortunately, that I think a lot of us are thinking about as we look at the news right now here in the year 2020. But yeah. it's I think. Yeah, there are certain talents that speak to people who spend all their time thinking about that art form or, you know, trying to improve their own craft. And I don't I don't know anything about film criticism except occasionally reading good reviews by people here in my lifetime. But Uh I think if you're if you're someone who grew up watching silent movies, uh, watching, you know, Charlie Chaplin, apparently he wrote an unpublished Charlie Chaplin movie like he wrote like a spec script for one, where Chaplin's huh. character would survive a nuclear holocaust, like that's a thing that you could <laughs> write about. A funny, that's a funny one. That's an interesting thing <laughs> to write. Um, but like he saw like early film into the forties and fifties. So like if you're thinking about what to say about film, like that's an era that you might want to go back to and read about because like it was all new. All of the well, conventions then, yeah, were that, new. that is when when people are figuring out how to talk about a thing. Yeah. especially if if you're a writer who is, I know, um, Catherine Van Arendonk, a TV reviewer. Oh, Doctor Van Arendonk. Of ours. Yes. yes, Doctor Catherine Van Arendonk. Sorry, Catherine. Um, she gets frustrated in like TV reviews when it when they lean too much on comparing it to like books or movies or something. Yes. When you're writing about a flourishing medium and you are you are not le- you're not leaning too much on comparison like you're finding what is unique about that medium and talking about it in a new unique way because it's a new unique thing like that is a thing that has value. Yeah. And the the I guess the bridge to take from his life as a critic, A.G., to the novel that we'll talk about today and his other writing is that he appears to just have been a keen observationist or observe. He's a keen observer. Observationist. <laughs> no, he's a keen observer. I'm a keen observationist of human nature. <laughs> and he seems to have. Let's applied. go look at the store, the, the stars at the observationist <laughs> later. 
<laughs> and we thought this was going to be a bummer episode. I'm out here making up words. There's, uh, there's time. Um, <laughs> there's still time. Is that he wrote this, like, he did some long-form reporting during the Great Depression on sharecroppers in Alabama that, like, didn't get published. It, he turned it into a book called, what is Let it? Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. And it, like, ran, like, a few hundred copies, and then they just, like, stopped printing it because no one was buying it. Um, but it is apparently, like, well, very well regarded um, and has, I think, a qu- the that New Yorker piece, it's, by, it's called A Famous Man from 2006 by David Denby. Uh, it does have some good, like, language about him just being someone who observed people as they are. Um, in an age concerned largely with the masses, A.G. was impressed by the notion that other human beings idiosyncratically are what they are in every ornery fiber. Um, and does it like, it's about like writing portraits of people that aren't judging, but also are just kind of like reporting what you see about people. Yeah, it's like, I think you would describe it now as like a warts and all approach. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which, which doesn't, it doesn't imply negativity. It implies thoroughness and like dispassionateness almost. Well, and um, or or a, a surplus of passion for just like everything under the sun has value. So I have to record it and like sure, honor sure, sure. its existence, mm-hmm. which I think is at the at the what this book does well. And perhaps also it might turn someone off in terms of the style. Yeah. And so it, it's considered a really important work of journalism like it is because it is it it, it is not ideological right no like he is he's not, not saying he's not saying like look at these look at these folks and this is why we need like universal health care <laughs> yes it's just like what he is passionate about and and this again you know is, is leaning on this new yorker piece which i did find like pretty adulatory so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> maybe take it with a grain of salt but his what he's enthusiastic about is, is just about being embedded and like reporting the stuff as it as it is and conveying to you the reader just like every conceivable like sense of everything that is that is happening mm. just with mm-hmm. with the goal of giving you a complete picture not necessarily trying to convince you of one thing or another but just like letting you know this is something that's going on yeah yeah and so for you can you can understand why this would be influential for like reporting yeah and and it seems to have bled over into his uh literary style for a death in the family, which you alluded to earlier, Andrew, is um, like autobiographical um, and is about his father dying in an auto accident. Um, I guess what in 1915 or so, 1915, yeah, more um, or less, and is just like about the fallout thereof. Um, and the yeah, because it's right because he was six at the time, so yeah. he didn't know this stuff. But no, 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 no. Isn't it from what I was reading? It's like imagining his his mother and yeah, so how she would be dealing with stuff and just how the entire family would be yes. coping with this loss. I want to get I I want to like set up the the way the book functions, and then maybe a little bit later we can get into the restoration edition that happened because this book was yeah. published. After he died, he was working on it up until his death after, you know, several heart episodes. He began in 48 and then he died in 55 and then it was published in 57 uh, by this 
guy, David McDowell, who for what it's worth, like he had designated his like literary executor. Like it wasn't just some guy. It was a a guy who he had put his words, his word estate in the hands (laughs) of. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so he, as you said, he's like, he's six years old. He's running about this. It starts with this essay that he actually got published in another magazine um, called Knoxville Summertime in 1915 or something. And it's this like really, is elegaic a word, Andrew? Is that a, like... It's, no, I, I know the word that you mean. Elegiac? I don't know that it's pronounced that way, but... The one that it's kind of like Elegi- an elegy? Isn't it like elegiac? Or ele- That's what I said. No, you said elegaic. Oh, it might be elegiac. Hmm. Hmm. They might all be wrong. I'm not going <laughs> to ask Emma what she says. Um, But it's a lot of like imagery of people living in this city in the south um what it feels like to settle into the evening the rhythms of people making food time passing um the noises you hear the people just kind of like hanging out and living their lives in this small town um i don't uh yeah and then it ends with this like (sighs) taking stock of the people who are there um by some chance, here they are, all on this earth, and who shall ever tell the sorrow of being on this earth, lying on quilts on the grass in a summer evening, among the sounds of night? May God bless my people, my uncle, my aunt, my mother, my good father. Oh, remember them kindly in their time of trouble and in the hour of their taking away. And it's a lot of really just heartfelt, a mix of poetry and prose that gets this feeling of like, this was a, I can't. This is like the image of my life I would like to hold on to in mm-hmm. a very romantic way. Um, but purportedly, it was not part of the book, actually. Like, it was this separate thing that he got published in a magazine somewhere. Right, yeah. And um, and, and uh, McDowell. McDowell must have just decided, like, this, is, this sets up this book really well than any of the other stuff that i have so let's put it in there yeah and so i read the quote-unquote original edition i guess whatever has been the edition for 50 years because after the, the despecialized edition, the de- let's call it <laughs> the d-res version um because yeah uh there's like an even there's an intro from a, a tennessee musician who's like listen this is the version of the book i read and some scholar made a new one that i guess is interesting but like, here's the version I know and I love as a boy, uh, and has spoke to me all my life. So here you go. And I was like, okay, well, that seems reasonable. Um, and it opens what I expected, Andrew, in the "A Sad Thing Happens to a Man" canon. I expected it to be about him as an adult. I expected it to be about an adult man dealing with the like repercate repercussions of this tragedy on his life. Yeah, sure. It even, is, or, or even like, like a Holden Caulfield. I was looking for. A, I was expecting a Holden Caulfield to be in this book, and he's not maybe, here. Yeah, maybe like a Holden Caulfield, or, or even like writing about it a little more, like from a little more remove, or like talking with his mom and family members. Yes, and getting them to reconstruct their memories. Yes. And then, presenting them like that rather than fictionalizing or th- it, right? yeah thinking of, I w- i'm reminded of something like a separate piece which we reread a little while ago and just like the looking back on my time as a youth i did not sure, understand yeah. these things <laughs> and it doesn't quite have that you know it's it's a 
messy, close, sort of omniscient, sort of in-your-head narrator. Um, he does whatever he needs to do to suit the scene. Um, but the main, like, adult man, his dad, for, you know, Jay Follett in the book, um, who gets called away by his brother who calls him in the middle of the night and is like, oh, your our dad, you know, had another attack. It's looking bad. You got to come down. And Jay is like, Ralph, are you, like, drunk and exaggerating? Like, this is clearly a big deal, but is it that big a deal? Two things um, can be true. Two things, and that's kind of where he lands. <laughs> Ralph, who uh, really reads as a what's the uncle from a It's a Wonderful Life? Oh, uh, Uncle Billy. He's a real Uncle Billy. Is a he, tragic. He means well. He means well, but he's a real piece of work, and he does ruin the whole family. Yes, with his with his japes. And and when you finally get <laughs> yes, when you finally get why a, is he? Why does Uncle Billy have that raven? Do you know? I, why does he have that? Why does he have that raven who just follows him around? I is really, Uncle Billy death? <laughs> whoa, we got it. Mm, maybe is there source text for "It's a Wonderful Life" that we could read for the show? It wasn't. Sure. Was it a play? I mean, it's a wonderful was it, life. I mean, I'm sure they made it into a play. No, it's just. Oh, it's based on the short story and booklet "The Greatest Gift," which is a 1943 short story written by Philip Van Doren Stern. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. It's an interesting thing to put that in your pocket for eight months from now. Great. I like it. Um, the reason I bring up Ralph, and I probably won't talk about him again for the rest of the book, um, he strikes me as this Uncle Billy character. When you finally get a point of view chapter with him, he's like his own worst critic about being kind of the weak sibling of the family who never went anywhere and as such is like incredibly dependent on the family, but also has his hands in all the family's business. Um, he also has an incredible like drinking problem that he, nobody trusts him and they see him as weak. Um, and it closes with this. And here it comes tonight like a test, like a trial. One of the times in a man's life when he is needed and can be some good just by being a man. But I'm not a man. I'm a baby. Ralph is the baby. Ralph is the baby. And I did laugh and think I'm baby for a period of time. <laughs> because Ralph is this like cartoonishly bad brother in terms of like <laughs> just people need him to stand up and be helpful and he's just not and he is just like i'm the baby gotta love <laughs> he does say that yes um so yeah jay goes there's this like really lovely scene with him and his wife mary at like three in the morning where they she's like okay i guess you're gonna go even though ralph sucks like i guess you're gonna go down there and check things out and while she goes down to like make him breakfast and while he she's down there he like tucks the covers up to keep the warmth in the bed for her when she goes back to bed and then they there are pages where he's just talking about how good the coffee is and how good the eggs she made are and they don't really talk about the possibility that his dad is dead but they just kind of hmm. stare at each other and think about the little things they're doing for each other in that moment which in context, AG is giving you like a little bit of like, okay, they have some troubles. Thanks to this early scene I wrote, you know that maybe Jay has like a, his own drinking problem and Mary's trying to deal with it. But this is a moment where they're learning to come together and it happens to be over her making the eggs right and him warming up some milk for her. 
And it's just, I don't know, it was really, that seems to jive with the AG who is like, I present the people, look at them. I recorded everything they did, including all the steps they took to make pancakes while they were wondering if their dad was dead. Like, uh-huh. and that, I don't know, it's struck me as, I was, it was not a long book, so I had time to like step away from it and think about things. And I was just like, oh, what are the like little things, what are the tokens of domestic I got your back that I treasure. It's like a sweet little road to take my brain down. What were, what were, what were some of the things on the road? Well, there's what like... What things did you find? There's... What did I find on this road? What did you find on the road, Craig? Sometimes it's like who makes coffee for the other person in the morning. That's a real thing in a house where both people drink coffee. And, you know, obviously Laura and I are staying... We're at home together all the time now. So, like... She was for several months just drinking coffee at work, but now it's like depending on who is having the rougher morning or the night before, you know, needed to go to bed, then that person sets it up for the morning. Or planning meals becomes a like, how can I take care of you and think about your needs because you had a a busier day or whatever it might be like that. It's just it. It hit me in a realer way than I expected coming into this book. (laughs) You know what I I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think Susanna and I both have like for the lack. I I was just thinking about it just now. And the only term that came to mind is like fairy things like. Oh, yes. From my perspective. A magic fairy might as well come and do all our dishes all the time. That's what it's Laura just not says. Something I yes. have to worry about. And from Susanna's perspective, boy, it's funny how the floors just get vacuumed periodically, <laughs> and the baseboards don't get like dust and stuff on them uh-huh. as much as they maybe should. Uh huh. It's it. it, it I think for in terms of house stuff, I think she handles more of the like day to day stuff, and I am like more of a. I need to I need to get the drill out to do yeah. whatever this yes. is. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like uh-huh. I'm handling more of the big stuff and the financial stuff. So I think it splits about 50-50, I think. And, and and something Yeah, Laura and I have our things that we each do more than the other person does. Laura does more of the laundry than I do. I do I usually do more of the cooking and dishwashing. Um it's kind of ebbed and flowed. Over the last few weeks, I'm doing more of the grocery shopping now. And like all of those things are just and as it's portrayed in this book, also like ways that you just make space for someone in your head and like Mm -hmm. don't like how do you remember what they might need or envision what they might need six, 12, 24 hours from now? Mm -hmm. Um, And how does remembering that like how is that a thing that you give them? Um, And in this book where especially after Jay dies in the automobile accident. Like it is a lot about like how are people taking care of each other moment to moment. That's a lot of what AG is focused on. And probably just because of like what he experienced as a kid living through this. Right. I would imagine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, cause this isn't, this isn't a thing that like happens and then it has happened and you don't have to think about it anymore. Yeah. Like, this is a, this is a thing that you get to think about for the whole rest of your childhood and your whole life. Yeah. It's not like you're welcome. And that's, I wonder if that is part of the, the like canonization and of him among writers and the like interest in his work where like his seminal novel is the autobiographical novel that he writes where like, some authors, that's their second novel after they had this other thing that they write 
take off or they wrote that novel and then they moved on and had like you know three or four other books that explore other stuff like this is what he has um so it's hard to separate that from the reading experience i guess well and it's it's to get back i guess to my sort of sardonic like oh a sad thing <laughs> happened to yeah, a man sure. like read as i was getting into the research for this i think some of that is just the the canon demands tragedy like you you are more mm-hmm. noteworthy mm-hmm. if you are coming at your art from a place of pain and that i mean that that's not just a white male canon thing no that's that, everyone that resonates yeah. that that's that's everywhere and that like it, it affects attitudes on like mental health like what if i take these antidepressants and i'm not the art that i have doesn't make meaning anymore because you need to be in pain to make good art like it's just a for whatever reason, culturally, we'd seem to value art that comes from a, a hurt place well, rather than art that comes from anywhere else. Some of that, I think, I talk about that a lot when I'm working in arts education scenarios where we talk about like what are stories that we feel compelled to tell. And it usually, you people gravitate towards like novel experiences and high stakes experiences. So like, you know, big deaths in families or big upheavals in your, like, rare are the compelling stories about just, like, some stuff happens. Like Right, because I, I, as a reader, if I run yeah. into that, I'm just like, well, this is just a bunch of stuff that happened. And <laughs> well, what's the reason for this story to be a story? And if I'm a writer, like, what am I going to dedicate time out of my life to write about, right? Um, so... Uh, Again, all this to say, I was surprised that the book did not really center an adult AG character. Like there is not, so the main the the character that is him in the book is the boy Rufus, um, which I think was AG's middle name, um, or yes, that was his middle name. Um, so Rufus is like the six year old boy who we see throughout the book. That's him. We never meet like an adult Rufus or anything like that. Um, I think in the restored manuscript, there's like an opening chapter where the adult Rufus has a dream about John the Baptist or something and like drags his bloody head down the street. That's not in the book that I read. (laughs) So I'll just put that out there to say it exists, um, but it's not what I read. I feel like, yeah, that's, that's the sort of thing that you can feel free to put in a book that's existed for 50 years and already has a, <laughs> an established reputation and people are going to know that it has value going in. That's not the kind of thing that if you are somebody's literary executor that you're going to put in <laughs> right away to a book that, that to a book that you want anybody to buy or read, yeah. you know, no, I, I did that. that. Ju- I just thought about that <laughs> just now. Cause I feel like, we could. I don't know if this is the section where you want to talk about. Yeah, no, talk about this. But my reading that some University of Tennessee professor decided in like 2007. No, I'm the one. I'm the one who's going to tell the story the way it was meant to be told, and then publishes it on University of Tennessee Press for fifty dollars. <laughs> yep. Yep. So my, I just come away from that wondering, like, who are who are you? Like, what are you? <laughs> Who are you to tell us that this that this work that has a reputation and has been established for half a century is not 
right or like not good enough and we should read your version instead yeah it's i guess well so i don't i know nothing about michael lafaro and his work i no, maybe... i don't and, and like it and, and my view is like half who are you and half like oh this is this is a different perspective on the on another on, on the same thing that's been established yeah and so that that has value at least insofar as you're like surfacing more of his his words and thoughts and maybe providing like even even if you choose to prefer the established version you at least have more of an idea of like where ag was coming from or or whatever i find it amazing that he presented this at a conference that was pretty much that was on the 50th anniversary of ag's death like and he shows up at the conference is like listen guys the book we love is wrong is definitely wrong and i have a new one i i am thankful for I did not know any of this until after I bought and started reading the book. I did not accidentally purchase like the text as it uh, garnered acclaim and came out right after his death is the one that you just go out and buy if you don't do a lot of research. So like, I feel good that he has not erased the original's legacy in as much as uh-huh. he has attempted to add to it. But it, is, it does seem kind of presumptive. <laughs> In how much material he seems to have added to it, um, and he reordered the entire book. Like chapters were put in different orders, like chronologically. Um, there, there was a New York Times review. So you talked about that nightmare prologue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the New York Times review of this new edition said, so which version is better? I'd say the new edition, though the nightmare prologue could have been recited in a therapist's office to greater effect. (laughs) The novel improves without McDowell's flashbacks, which block the narrative's quietly tragic flow. The wreck is more devastating. Okay, yeah. So the thing that doesn't happen in this book, but because you, like, Jay Follett dies hmm, a tenth of the way into the book, a fifth of the way into the book, so you don't get a great sense of him as a character, and that's okay because it's mostly about what his loss and what his abs what his loss means and what his absence is going to mean to his family. And the two main characters that we see are Rufus um, and Rufus's mother Mary. Um, and there's a I was just impressed by how much book was given to Mary, um, who thinks about when they hear that Jay's dad might be dying and he's gone for a day and she's just left alone with her thoughts about his dying dad, maybe. Uh, she waxes about why she never really liked him. And some of this some of this book has these incredible like mental burns. There was a special kind of basic weakness about him. That was what she could not like or respect or even forgive or resign herself to accepting. For it was a kind of weakness which took advantage and heaped disadvantage and burden on others. And it was not even ashamed for itself, not even aware. Dang, Mary. <laughs> That's my dad you're talking about. Like, the... It has this book has some interesting concepts or I guess issues with manhood. Like in an early chapter, Rufus is talking about his dad introducing him, his six year old son, to some people at a bar, and he's like, "Oh, this is my son. He reads real good." And like even six year old Rufus is like, "Well, why didn't he say I was like a brave, strong boy? He just mentioned that I could read real good. Like that's." 
that's not what dads should be saying about their sons. And I don't think that that is a value judgment AG is making. I think it's a confusion and a consternation that he probably sat on his entire life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like I can't imagine, can't imagine what it is about having a, a your main male role model taking out of your life that would make you really weird about male role yeah, models. Yeah, it's very for the, strange for the huh? whole rest of your existence. Yeah, uh, as someone with an absent father figure, it this book did hit me in some ways. I will say. Hmm. Interesting. You can talk about that as much or as little as you want to. Well, I'm going to open that door to you right that now or close I, it if you need me to. Let's like leave it ajar over there. James Ajar over there. Um, We're not air conditioning the entire neighborhood, Craig. In or out. <laughs> Come on. Oh, okay. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> um, just that I'm like a now. person doesn't have to be there to impact your life is the yes, is like yeah, the thing yeah. I found myself thinking a lot about in this mm-hmm. book. Um sure. I'll try, oh God, we've barely talked about what even happens in this book, but I think we've had a good conversation. So I think we have. So we got like twenty-ish minutes. Just take let me, me take me through it. Take me through it, Daddy. Um, Mary and Jay. One of the rifts in their marriage before Jay passes away is that she is this devout Catholic with her aunt Hannah, and no one else in the family, her side or Jay's side, are particularly religious. This becomes a huge problem when Jay dies in a freak automobile accident and much of the family doesn't really, they don't know what to do with the like kind of random chance element of his death. I'll talk about what happens in a second. Um, And Mary leans heavily into her religion um, and it alienates her from other members of the family. And the, the book does not answer. It doesn't come down on one side or the other, I don't think. I think it's just exploring, like, some people find comfort in this tradition and this this is bigger than me feeling that mm-hmm. p- being part of a religious tradition can give you, particularly in times of grief. Uh, Mary talks a lot about, like, oh, I now I just know what it feels like to... This is like another chapter of living that people have to hit and will hit, and now I'm just here. And here are these other people giving me this feeling and like seeing it with me. Okay. Um, and then her father is like a staunch a- atheist. Her brother is a staunch atheist. And they're just like, I don't, maybe, maybe we should just take solace in the fact that like he didn't feel any pain and now he's just gone. And we could just like reconcile ourselves with that. Um, and you see that argument played out both in scenes with Mary and with like Rufus, like hearing from adults, their own frustrations about the back and forth of it. Um, this is kind of Mary's stuff is kind of counterbalanced with like one or two comic scenes with the kids. I'll say comic, maybe, um, where the kids comic is all relative, relative I think in this case, where yeah. like bef- this is before Jay's passing, but it's after a long, serious passage about Mary's relationship to God, where she's attempting to talk to the kids about their grandfather maybe dying and like how that's when like God takes them. And uh, Rufus and his younger sister Catherine are like, is that like when the rabbits died or when the dogs died? And uh, Rufus is like, well, why would why would God want dogs in heaven? Why did He let dogs in heaven? Excuse, there's a whole movie about <laughs> I, this. I know. <laughs> and his answer is like, what good would it do him to have dogs up there? And it's just like really funny. You you watch Mary not really have any answers for them, 
and it's playful in a way I didn't expect. And she basically just boils it down to like, God doesn't believe in the easy way. So we just have to roll with what we don't understand, which obviously does not satisfy a six-year-old. But how I think about this. Okay. Hit me. You, okay. Uh-huh. So, so heaven is supposed to is, is supposed to be a reward, right? Like, like you're not. I'm not thinking about this in like the Dante and no, 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 no. I'll become like singing balls of light or whatever it is. But uh, heaven is a space where you're rewarded for whatever it is on earth, and so you can kind of get. I imagine that to be a space where you can kind of get whatever you want, like whatever your idealized. Yeah, that's the that's sort the whole version yeah. of existence is. And so I if I have a beloved dog who uh-huh. I miss so much, I can imagine that dog. <laughs> I can create that dog with my oh. mind and that dog can be in heaven without it actually being that dog. Does that make sense? Well, this mm, So that dog the dog not all dogs go to heaven, but that doesn't mean there aren't dogs in heaven, you know? Yes, because I created this dog. It's a simulation. It's a dog of the mind, if you will. <laughs> if, you, if you and I will, I think. <laughs> yes. Uh woof, that's a real thought provoker, I, I think. I know cuz what well, okay, so the other the other way this could play out, you get up to heaven, your dog's been up there for like 60 years already. He doesn't <laughs> he's moved on. He's got his own stuff going on. Yeah, that's true. Dogs have stuff to do up there. Yeah. Because what if dogs can manifest their wants in heaven? Yeah, because oh, to dogs no. it's like can can dog can can god, dog god make a car so fast that even he couldn't catch it. That's a great know? question. That's a great mm-hmm. question. Is heaven yeah. instanced, I wonder? Like, are we all in the same heaven? Or to like, yeah. do I get my heaven where I just make versions of stuff I, I like? rent out sort of a slice of heaven. Yes, sure. That's my server. And I can do what I want on it. <laughs> this is an RP heaven. That um, even raises the question, like, oh, if, if, some, if, my good, if my best good friend's not in heaven... Can I still have him up there with me because I can create the mind version? Oh, man. This is why religion is hard. <laughs> oh, man. So, okay. So, the the book doesn't get this metaphysical, but it does, like, Mary's arc in this book is to wind up at a spot where she is alienated from her from some of her family because she has just gone so far into comfort through her religion. Um, mm-hmm. There, we get another... The chapter where we learn what happened to Jay is one of the things I will probably remember most of this book. It's like she gets a call from a blacksmith she's never heard of that her her husband was in an accident. Can they send can they send a man there to deal with it? And she's like, "What?" And just like and so she sends her brother Andrew to go deal with not you, her brother in the book Andrew to go <laughs> deal with it. <laughs> and she then sits, like is sitting there for like two and a half hours, if not more, with her aunt, um, like waiting to hear back. And she starts like making the bed for Jay in case he needs to lie down. And we get this like page and a half. There's lots of passages in this book that remind me of Faulkner, where there's no paragraph breaks, and it's a mix of really mundane domestic action with like internal thought processes. Um, where she's like, she put more kindling and hurried into the downstairs bedroom. How do I know, she thought. He didn't even say. I didn't even ask. By the way he talks, he may be... She whipped off the coverlet, folded it, and smoothed the pad. I'm just I'm just simply not going to think about it until I know more. And it goes on like that for literally like two pages of this, like, the 
the busy the busy work of the hands when you are either in grief or anticipating grief mixed with the racing mind of questioning and searching um and that works very well and he he has a really good sense of rhythm because what follows that passage is this really rollicking run-on sentence of a scene where the family hears from Andrew what happened to him. They all have questions. They're asking who's going to drink whiskey to deal with it. How much whiskey? Does grandma have her ear trumpet? Can she hear us? Has she taken her (laughs) ear trumpet out? Do we need to repeat the facts about the car crash to her? And it's like, it's all teetering on the edge of falling apart um, in a way that feels very real. The accident itself, the accident itself is a real shame. The, a, a like, pin comes loose from the like it's not like he there's some suspicion that maybe he was driving drunk or like speeding or something um as it is described a pin came loose in the steering column he didn't realize it until he hit a rock and tried to correct the steering wheel didn't do anything he lost control but he hit his chin on the steering wheel and died instantly and they know that like they know that because he is then flung from the car without any further injury as he, as the car drives up an embankment. Um, mm-hmm. And so the doctors are like, listen, he would have tried to correct for the car if he was still alive. Um, and so the, the rest of the family is like, wow, well, at least he didn't suffer. We can take as much solace as possible in that. And Mary is dealing with the fact that like he didn't know he was going to die. He didn't get to square his himself with God, like before he passed. And so she has a lot of agita around that. Um, okay. And that again, like I think I, I said earlier, the, the suddenness of the accident and the randomness of it kind of haunts and comforts people off and on throughout the book, which I think is a very human and natural response. Like you want to make yeah, sense yeah, yeah. of it, but it, there really isn't anything to make sense of. It just happened. Mm-hmm. Um, we do spend time with young Rufus throughout the book. There's an amusing scene where he convinces his aunt to buy him a stupid looking hat um, <laughs> so that he can wear it and show his dad his cool hat. And she's like trying to convince him. She's like, listen, Rufus, this hat is like, you're going to have to wear that with a lot of different clothes. <laughs> and he's like, no, I want it. Which is like, she's she's trying not to crush his spirits about this stupid like yellow checkered hat and he's like nah i will wear this hat every day you cannot stop me this is my what my inter- my internal monologue is like when i'm trying to buy clothes in animal crossing for myself <laughs> like what are you what are you gonna wear this weird hat with what is this for what, what event is this for, is this and then, for? And like you know what you know what man i'll figure it out <laughs> <laughs> Matching outfits are a tool of the patriarchy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we get like flashbacks with of from Rufus of like times he spent with his father, uh, a time that his dad comforted him after a bad dream, a trip they take to visit uh, like a great-great-grandmother or something. Um, but the main story arc for Rufus in the book is this series of interactions with the boys in town that are all a few years older than him and all are, the boys are back in town, Andrew. They never left. I saw your face. I know you needed to know. Also, they refer to the car that uh, Rufus's dad died in as a Tin Lizzie. So Ooh. I was definitely thinking about Thin Lizzie and Thin the boys Lizzie, being yes, back in town. Sure. Yes. Okay, great, good. <laughs> um, 
So the boys tease Rufus a lot, and the older boys know to be nice to him enough that he won't like run away from them so that they can amuse themselves by being mean to him. And like one of the two or three ways that the book actually addresses like racism in the South, and it doesn't do it too often um, because all the characters for with a few exceptions are white, like this family's all white. Um, sure. And they don't have a lot of interaction um, with non-white people in the South. But the the boys tease him for his name Rufus um, and attach it to a whole bunch of racist nonsense um, to the point where like he doesn't he starts to feel shame about his own name, but doesn't even really understand why, because he's like five and doesn't get it. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a real shame because his dad wants him to like be a boy who can move through the world with confidence. And so he is always trying to be accepted by them, even though he recognizes that they're teasing him. And as I say all of this out loud, I don't know how anyone could feel this way. I've never experienced any of these emotions <laughs> As a kid growing up, I've never been teased or concerned about how people view me. It's never happened. Sure. And none of your many names have ever been mispronounced or like no. used against you in any way. No, I've never had someone say my given name in a way that was meant to make me upset. That's never happened. Mm-hmm. Truly. No, 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 no. Not, not to Bill. No, not to old, not Bill. To old Bill over here. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, for those who are only just listening this week, uh, my first name is not Craig, it's Mylan, and I got a whole lot of crap for it as I was a kid because nobody understands that you might have a name that's just not easy to say because you think it's a town in Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the arc of Rufus and these boys starts with the name thing. He starts trying to counteract it by like singing this song, and the older boys are smart enough to be like, oh, we're just going to let him sing his dumb song and make fun of him later, but we got to like be nice to him so that he'll keep doing it. Cause they suck. These boys suck. And then after well, they're bad, sometimes. they're really bad, <laughs> whether they're in town or not. Yes. Um, guess who just got back today? A bunch of jerks. Um, and af- so it, it culminates in this really sad scene where after his dad dies, Rufus goes outside on his porch and he's like, he gets explained what happened to him as best as he can understand it. And he's just sitting there thinking about the fact, Oh, my dad died. My daddy died. He says a bunch. And he starts telling people on the street who are walking by his house. And they're like, whoa, they don't know what to do with a six-year-old talking to them, saying this out loud. And then the boys come by on their way to school. And they're like, yo, idiot, why aren't you going to school? And he's like, I don't have to because my dad died. And they're like, really? Your, your dad is the one in the paper who they're talking about? And he like holds court over them with this like special knowledge because it's the only, you know he's the first one or only one in class that this has happened to. Um, and then like one of the boys is like telling a different version of the story that he read in the paper and, uh, Rufus kind of goes along with it because of, he doesn't have the force of will to like make the entertaining version of the story, like go away. Um, and it's just like, I don't know. Rufus is a sad character and you could tell that AG like, really looks back on this time really looked back on this time in his life and was like where was i even supposed to go with any of this sure yeah um and not you know b- 
being alienated from the adults in his life, but also not really having any peers to latch onto. I think that's the the saddest part of the book is that he doesn't have a network of other characters. There's no coming of age element to this book at all. It's it's much less. It's much more cut off. Yeah, I feel I feel like the the more common or like the lighter version of this of this boyhood mm-hmm, mm-hmm. would be. Yeah, all the all the boys in school make fun of me, but I found like one or two other sort of like-minded people who stuck by me and this was my plucky friend group. Yes. And we went out on like Spielbergian adventures together. Yeah, I I feel like there or it or even it's of a Huck Finn tradition or something like, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. I feel like as we've been talking about this book and like what separates it from other things that it might be alongside on a bookshelf of the white male canon from the 20th century. Like the things that it's not stand out to me just as much as what it is. Like it doesn't, it's not doing traditional buildings, Roman stuff. It's not doing the, let me look back on my young life stuff. Um, it's way more grounded in these like little moments of human interaction that honestly remind me, even though this, like the tone is very different of stuff like, uh, Virginia Woolf into the lighthouse, just like a real poetic sense of of being an observationalist, um, and uh, and seeing the world around you and and how people interact with them with each other. Well, that was a that was a big part of his journalistic yeah, and yeah. reporting career, as we've talked about already. So I guess it's not surprising that that would be present in this book, also. Yes, um, and so I'll just say that, like, as we wrap up the. Uh, the funeral is a lot. Um, I was thinking about when I lost my grandmother when I was in eighth grade and I was instantly taken back there by this book because I can't remember another funeral I went to before that. Um, and it's very striking when you encounter that for the first time and it's actually someone, you know, Yep, it's really Mm rough. Um, Mm -hmm. and then it just closes on this passage with, there's a lot of other, you know, there's other interesting stuff in this book, but it closes on this passage with Uncle Andrew, who's like takes Rufus aside at the end of the day and talks to him about the burial, which the kids did not go to. And Andrew is like, listen, you know, I don't really believe in this heaven stuff. And I know that your mom does. But if I were going to, it would be because of this butterfly that landed on your dad's casket while the sun went behind a cloud and then the butterfly flew away when the casket was in the ground and it was very beautiful and it made me feel something. But then the priest wouldn't do the full burial ritual because my because your father wasn't baptized. And like, what's that about? And it ends on this like really unnerved, like simmering anger at like an incomplete job done because of conviction. Mm-hmm that also feels very universal in its specificity. Like it is very grounded in the couple of characters we've met. It's a pretty small cast overall. Um, And in their kind of polar views on religion and grief and things like that. Um, But I found it striking how AG managed to end the novel with like a, to me anyway, a feeling of unresolution, even as it is a, a book about like, Oh, and, my dad died and we buried him. But of course that's not the lived experience of someone who goes through that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's a heavy book. 
and we've tried to have some fun along the way, but trying to strike a balance between like I, I came into this because we'd schedule this out, I think months before like I the knew, Patreon stuff, especially yeah, yeah, we, yeah. we try to schedule out like months before we actually read it. And so I don't think we knew going in <laughs> that, that we would necessarily be reading such a bummer book at such a bummer time. So yeah. if I, if I have been erring on the side of being a little too light, it's because so many people have expressed appreciation for us being a way to just not think about our situation for a bit. Yeah. And honestly, like I come to recording it with that. With oh, I that hear that hope as well. I hear lot. that. So, um, and yeah, I, I, I hope we didn't seem too insensitive in our, in our desire to make a heavy one, a little lighter. No, you know, I, I think you can steer clear of this book. If that's not a thing you're looking for, you can steer clear of this book. If you're good on Southern male, Southern white male authors from, you know, this time period, if you're like eager to, you know, if you're feeling like you want to lean into this skit a little bit and you're just kind of looking for a, a story to put some feelings into, I think this might be an interesting one. Um, that's not quite the same as like, you know, comfort food fiction, but for some folks, that's what they're looking for. Um, yeah. I and mean, that's kind of how it functioned for me. So I, I think that it, it can be that if, if you're looking for it, um, Andrew, a less serious question that I want to ask as we wrap up to you. Oh boy. If, so this was a work of autobiographical fiction that focused primarily on a part of this author's childhood. If you were going to write autobiographical fiction, you have to. You can't say that you're not going to. Oh, no. What event would you choose? And do you, you like an event for my own life? Yeah, I want to. I want autobiographical. Autobiographical. It doesn't have to be serious, but like, do you like what do you? Here what are my, do you yes, think? I've got three. I'll, I knew you, that you three, were going to wow, be like Craig. Just... You're asking me this question. You better have answers if I'm going to answer it. So I said. Um, my grandmother's passing. That would be very fitting with this book. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, the time when I was 10 and I fell down a mountain while I was rappelling at a family reunion. That well. could be that could be funny and like spin Ooh. out into all sorts of things. And okay. then I just wrote down Scoopy, Scoopy, Scoop. I scooped for you my time at uh, Cold Stone. Yes, your time as an ice cream boy. <laughs> so that's the lighthearted. But or it's like a it's a tell all book about the Cold Stone <laughs> Creamery business. So, and life Boy. in a mall. That's my okay. story. So if we're talking about, okay, if we're talking about specific events. Or like, like eras, pick a, a season no, of I mean, your life. I, I yeah, have yeah. both, I have both specific events and eras. The, the era one, I think, is like the life and times of my 1991 Dodge Shadow. Oh, yes. That taught me so much about cars just by virtue of so many different parts of it breaking at so many different times it was really it was kind of it to break down a thing at a time so i could always understand <laughs> the clear like cause and effect between like yeah what an alternator did and what it would make your car do if it stopped working yeah that's, <laughs> that's a good answer <laughs> so that's a good one i mean maybe the time that my cousin randy hit me almost in the eye with the corner of a twister spinner board Yo! when we were in the basement of my grandma's house. That was a pretty bad one. Yeah, man. Um, those are, I think those, 
do you have, those do you have a, a if, really lighthearted one? Or those if you want a really ones. lighthearted one, I guess it could be when we had an inside cat and an outside cat. The outside cat's name was Shadow, and Shadow had six kittens. And from when she had those kittens to like 12 or 14 weeks later when my parents took them all to a shelter, it was a very... It was a very busy time at the Cunningham house. <laughs> oh, yeah. Richard Scary was there and everything. Yeah. It was mostly good. Mostly good. But but could teach you about some not good things along the yeah, way. Yeah, but That's you can tell which good. ones my, my, we, na- the three of us, my, <laughs> me and my brother and sister named most of them. And so there was stuff like, like Butterfinger or, or whatever stuff because it was orange, like. yeah. Snowball because it was white. And then the one my mom named, his name was Fleabite. Okay. Because he <laughs> lived outside and he was a gross cat and he probably had fleas. <laughs> he sounds like a Ninja Turtles villain. Fleabite? I like Fleabite. Yeah, a little bit. Fleabite, Bebop, Rocksteady. They were a band in the 90s. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they sold a lot of records. Um, well, thanks for listening to me talk about this book with you, Andrew. I think we got to the bot. We've gotten to the bottom now of why someone might like this book, I think. And like why. I feel like we've been all up and down. Yeah. Top, bottom, middle. Those are all the parts. All the, yeah, all the parts. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you, the listener, uh, has read this book or have other thoughts on you know authors from Tennessee or anything like that, you can send us an email at any o- other Tennessee business. There it is. You can send us an email at overduepod at gmail.com. Hit us up on Facebook or Twitter at overduepod. Uh, that's always a great way to. Uh, Increase engagement with the show. Thanks to Rebecca, Chris, Katie, Randy, Emily, Jenny, Riley, Grendel, Stacy, Sarah, Lee, and many more for doing that. Um, Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? Just go to overduepodcast.com, which is our internet website. Up there, we have links to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, our RSS feed. You can also find us on Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere else you download podcasts. We have a new listener page if you're just getting into the show now and you want to explore more of the catalog and sort of a more guided way. We have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash overdue pod. You can use that to recommend a book to us. You can use that to get bonus episodes early, especially bonus episodes of our current long read projects. Uh, right now, that is still Hellboys. Of new uh, one soon. Our read through of the of the Divine Comedy by Dante, but we will be starting up a new one soon, and we are excited about it. And we hope you are too. Uh, we are. We don't have our May schedule set yet. No, but it's but, almost done. And yeah, but w- when it is up, it will be up on the website and also on our social feeds. And as so I think I said earlier in the episode, our Encyclopedia Brown bonus episode should be hitting the main feed later this week. So if you are not a Patreon supporter and haven't already listened to it, you can look out for that in a few days. Yeah, that's it, Andrew. Get us out of here. All right, everybody. Now more than ever. Try to be happy. <laughs> that was a headgum podcast. <laughs> <laughs>